Good afternoon and welcome to the 162nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have an election day discussion about voting with Yahaira Ayala, Cora Fortune, and Sharona Pearl. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also catch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. Today, we're going to do things slightly differently. I'll talk about the um, COVID-19 statistics and read obituaries in the second half of today's discussion. We're going to jump right into our discussion today. I'm really pleased to have these guests and let me introduce them. We're going to talk about voting. Yahaira Ayala is a second year PhD student at the Disaster Science and Management Program at the University of Delaware. She's a sociologist looking at vulnerability, stratification, and resilience in disasters. Cora Fortune is a third year undergraduate student at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She's studying math and legal studies. She's also co-editor-in-chief at the Santa Cruz student-run newspaper, City on a Hill Press. And my third guest is Sharona Pearl. Sharona is a COVID calls veteran and so pleased to have her back. She's associate professor of medical ethics at Drexel University. She's a historian and theorist of the face and body with a focus on critical gender, race, and disability in the health humanities. She's published widely on these topics in the scholarly arena and is also a well-known freelance writer, Sharona, Cora, and Yahaira. Thank you so much for coming on COVID calls, especially today, election day, when I know you have many other things uh, pulling at your time. I don't know. This is actually something to have something to do. <laughs> okay, I'm glad that at least for this period of time, we could take your mind off of the uh, the doom scroll or the constant 538 refreshing or whatever everybody else seems to be doing at this time. Um, I'd like to start out just the way I usually do and just find out where you're calling in from and actually what the pandemic looks like there today. Yahira, can I start with you, please? Yeah, first of all, thank you for, for having me and for inviting me. It's, it's really a pleasure. Um, so I'm in McAllen, Texas, which is south, south of Texas, bordering with, with Mexico. And I would say that things look a little bit more normal than I would like. Um, so masks are no, as far as I understand, are not longer required. They're required like in stores and things like that. But other than that, it's it's just kind of a suggestion rather than rather than than something that people should take into account i think um i think cases are starting i believe cases are starting to rise in the area again and that is very saddening to see especially as as the area is known to be one of the poorest areas in the united states and so we have a lot of issues finding resources and pulling resources from from anywhere we can um so yeah that's that's how things are looking here 
Can you say just a little bit, Yahira, about the political situation there um, in terms of the the way I had Irely Hernandez on from the Washington Post a few weeks back, and she was talking about the situation of Latinos in South Texas. And it seemed like a very difficult situation with the leadership coming out of Austin, not really in sync with the local leadership and the reality on the ground there in places like McAllen. Is that your experience as well? Or are you seeing something different? I think that's, it's really hard to tell sometimes because the Hispanic vote or, or Latino vote is, I think it's, it's something complicated to say the least, just because you have all this cultural background pulling in one direction and the reality that you're living pulling in another. So it's a very like stark contrast, um, especially when you're talking about religious uh, beliefs uh, having a place in, in, in how you in how you vote and and how you decide to to do so. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of contradictions, I think just culturally and you know rather than just from the reality that that we live is it's just like I said, it's just difficult to to really explain and say this is the situation because it just looks different every everywhere. Cora, let me bring you in. Where are you calling from and what's the pandemic update from out there? Um, yeah, I'm calling in from Santa Cruz, California. Um, it's We've been on and off the governor's watch list over the past couple months and we're at almost 3,000 cases in the county right now. The I will say though that the biggest question is with a um, large population of folks in the community who are either houseless or at risk of losing housing. Um, there, it's been a little bit, um, we're uncertain how reliable the numbers around testing are for those communities and um, getting resources out to them. And um, especially now that the rainy season in California is about to hit and that will close down a number of outdoor um, encampments and there's no plan from the city yet um, for where folks will have a place to go. So um, to see what the next month will hold. What's the situation on campus then? Are, are people on campus or not? We have about a thousand students on campus, so much lower than normal. Um, most folks are in their hometowns. There's only, there's no, the only case that's been connected to campus is a student who lives in Santa Cruz, not on campus. Um, and so campus has been pretty strict and folks on campus can actually lose their housing if they break any of the mm. restrictions. Um, and yeah, so houseless students is another population that's um, definitely more vulnerable right now. I did a COVID calls not long ago with editors of campus newspapers. And one of the things that came out both um, in Bloomington, one was in Indiana and the other in Ann Arbor in Michigan, was how important the campus newspapers were to actually telling intensely local pandemic stories, particularly it, with the sort of collapse of the newspaper, the local news reporting. What role is the newspaper that you're working with playing in terms of uh, covering the pandemic story there locally? Yeah, so we've definitely seen a decline in local journalism around here. Um, and the student-run newspaper has always had a big role in the local community, not just on campus. Um, so we're doing pretty regular COVID updates. And um, for the, the city over, the second largest city in the county, Watsonville, 
um, which is predominantly Latinx, um, lower income community, um, where there has been a number of um, waves of outbreaks. Um, there's really no local news coverage of that. So we're, um, it's, it's definitely been difficult with our reporters are now spread out across the state if they're living at home. Right. Um, but we are trying to get updates from there pretty regularly, which are right now they only exist on the county health department website, which is not accessible. So this is like impossible situation almost where the newsroom is set is spread out all over the state and trying to cover intensely local news. Wow. What a challenge. What an important task to take on. Sharona, let me bring you into this. Um, where are you calling from and how's it looking? I'm calling from South Philadelphia and it feels like a city holding its breath. We're really on the edge of a precipice and I think everybody's quite aware of that. So while mass compliance has always been pretty good in Philadelphia, and I think there's a real sense in the city of most people working together and being on board with the collective responsibility in terms of mass compliance and general pandemic etiquette and behavior. We're in the middle of something and everybody knows it and the tension is rising. So cases are surging and everybody's kind of waiting for what's going to happen next. And it feels pretty inevitable that there's going to be another shutdown, Scott. Well, um, I guess we're going to have to leave that part of it there. I, the, the, this creeping um, in some places, it's not creeping. It's profound in the upper Midwest and in Philadelphia, it's a station. And I've had that same feeling in New Jersey that everybody's very tense because you're seeing those, those case numbers click up. And here it is intersecting with election day. And so we've been talking about the election all year and throughout COVID calls. But today it seemed right to actually talk to people about voting and who better to talk to than people um, who are thinking a lot about voting. And so one way uh, to cover that is to actually talk to first time voters. So Sharona, I want to start with you. Um, tell me about your experience today. It was incredibly powerful. So I, amongst a lot of my friends had had a lot of discussions about the best and most effective way to vote and have your vote counted, which as an aside is not what democracy looks like. And these were not conversations that we should have had to have. Back in May during the primaries, everybody voted by mail out of a concern for safety. And then in order not to have your next vote for the presidential election be by mail, you had to opt out of continuing with that. And most people didn't, either out of concern or inertia or sense you could change it later. But I quite deliberately did, because even then, I didn't have full confidence in uh, the current administration's support for alternative voting. And we had a number of discussions amongst our friends, amongst me and my husband, who is also a new citizen and first time voter mm -hmm. about the most effective way to make sure that our vote would be counted. And while I think that it is fantastic that people were able to vote safely and at a distance, and I'm so glad that everybody had the opportunity to avail themselves of it, actually felt quite insisted that I wanted to vote in person, both in terms of having the vote be counted, but also out of a sense that this just felt really powerful to me. It felt really powerful for my family. So 
I was a bit concerned about a lineup at the polls, but I live really close to my polling place. The weather is beautiful today. So I just got up early, which it turns out was the wrong decision because there were lineups at 7 a.m. and none at yeah. 2 p.m. Uh, but not only that, my two older kids set their alarms for 6.40 this morning, which they did not have to do. And they joined me and they voted with me. And then they proceeded to explain to everybody around them why they thought the Electoral College was a terrible idea. And then <laughs> they cheered and clapped when I voted for the first time and proudly announced to everybody that it was my first presidential election. And it was pretty thrilling to feel like I'm playing a part in something that is so needed and necessary in this moment. Now, when did you get your, your US citizenship? So we began the process in 20, 18, I want to say. It was sort okay. of a long process in multiple different ways. We actually have a friend who's an immigration lawyer, and I very deliberately went over there for brunch with my husband and sort of sicked her on him to convince us that it was, I had already wanted to become a citizen mm -hmm. and begin the process. Uh, and she explained in very clear terms why she felt that that was a very good and necessary decision at that point. And frankly, we were quite lucky that we started it then because the administration began a very deliberate slowdown of processing those kinds of cases not right. long ago. So I had kind of a nine month process from start to finish and people who applied even two or three months after might still be waiting now. Amazing. Well, so you cast your first vote in the U.S. presidential election, and you did, did. it, and you did it in Pennsylvania with your children looking on. I did. Extraordinary. I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to you, and because we're gonna talk about some of the motivating issues for people here in a minute. Cora, let me get your voting day experience. It was your first vote in a U.S. presidential election today, right? Yeah, that's right. So I am still a fresh 18. Um, and this morning, 7.30 a.m., drove down to the polls to vote in person. Um, California does mail everyone a ballot, but um, I decided to vote in person, um, mostly because some of the propositions on the California ballot this year were took me an incredibly long time to piece together. Um, and, you know, by that time, I was like, well... I'm here, I'll just do it in person. And it was, um, you know, it was an empowering experience, I feel like. And I mean, for something that took me 20 minutes this morning, um, thankfully, thankfully the lines were not um, incredibly long. For something that took me 20 minutes this morning, it was, um, it really did feel like one small thing that I could do today that makes yeah, should, hopefully makes a little bit of a difference tomorrow. Did you have a hype crew like Sharona did explaining the electoral college to other people in line or no, you didn't didn't have a hype team? I, I did not. I had to traverse it on my own. Yeah. yeah, I recommend that for future elections that you bring a team with you into the plan. I'm surprised they, no, I guess they let, if they're underage, they let them in with it, yeah. They what even was the, have stickers for kids. They have future voter stickers that they give oh, them. Oh, okay. That's cool. Cora, what what was the um, what was it like at the polling place? You said it was you went early. Yeah, so I went early and I voted at the county clerk's office, which happens to be the closest one to me, but it's not the most central one to most folks in town. So it was pretty quiet, which I, I was unsure how to feel about that. I don't know if it was 
I mean, record numbers, record numbers of people are voting by mail in California. So on one hand, maybe a quiet um, ballot location is a good thing and there aren't lines around the block. On the other hand, I really hope that the turnout continues to increase the way it has been over the past like two weeks. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, I, I followed the eight and, like eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. I followed the signs and just went on my way. I have pretty distinct memory the first time I voted in a presidential election. And when I got in there, I, I totally, it was so confusing. This was in Texas. And I must have been in there so long because I was double checking and triple checking. It wasn't a single, you know, it just seemed like it was overly complicated. And, and it's different state by state. Did your ballot have a bunch of, you said there were ballot initiatives as well, right? Yeah, so I I did go in with my sample ballot all filled out. Um, You're a lot smarter than I was, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I just, um, and perhaps, you know, growing up in the age that I did, I voted on a giant iPad, um, which was a familiar scene to me. So um, I did one double check and then submit. Great. Uh, Thanks for sharing that. Yahira, let me bring you in. You did not vote today. Tell us your story. So I am a permanent resident, and so thus cannot vote. I'm not a U.S. citizen, um, and so it's it's nerve wracking. <laughs> I think that's just how I can, the best way I can I can explain it because. I feel for a while we've known that there's a lot of stake, especially in this election. It's always in every election. There's, I think that's, it's important to state that, that every election is important, but this one feels especially intense to say the least. Um, and it's nerve wracking to feel like you're in the sidelines watching all this happen around you and hoping that whatever little or much activism you did throughout the year in saying, in bringing out with your family, hey, this is, or with those friends and family who can vote, being like, hey, have you registered to vote? Or have you done this? Like, you know, due dates approaching. Um, and so it's it's nerve wracking. And, and you're hoping that, that, you know, to see some fruits out of that, out of that work. Um, so it's just, it, it's an incredible experience to, to be able to try to do something and still feel like it gets to a point where, where, where you have to let it go because mm-hmm. there is not much you can do further uh, in, that, in that sense. So, yeah. <laughs> you must have that feeling. I'm, I've heard from so many friends around the world um, and some in the United States who are also non-citizens and, you know, they don't come out and say, hey, did you vote? You know, they don't try to tell me. But just as you described it, you know, their awareness and their engagement with the United States political process is actually a really important nudge uh, to all of us that we have to attend to it. And I wonder what what you think about that. I mean, voting turnout in the United States, it's up this year, but generally compared to other democracies in the world, we don't do that well. 
No, we don't. I, and I think I think that's interesting. Like I grew up in Mexico for like 15 years of my life. And it never occurred to me that, that people would even question going to vote because in Mexico is it's it's a cultural thing. It's part of your it, it's part of not only like a your civic duty, but it's part of being part of the community. And and it's and when you come to the US, it's just a completely different experience. Um, so, you know, having that outsider perspective, it, it always impressed me to see that 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 it is that the process is so much more different and so much more difficult or confusing at least it seems mm-hmm. um, to someone that has not gone through the process that has only seen it from outside and heard from outside. Um, it is hard to to understand the whole entail. Like I would have never thought that I should have a sample ballot with me, uh, you know, right. because in in Mexico it seems so 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 straightforward and um and so it's just impressive i guess we're i'm in a i'm in a very unique situation i feel and yeah (laughs) well let's talk about issues for a second sharona um i mean you became a u.s citizen in in a time and we've had these moments before in u.s history uh where anti-immigrant feeling culture becomes policy in a real way. And it's, I, this has been a drastic uh, episode of that. Talk a little bit about what motivated you to wanting, well, I mean, not to become a US citizen, but to get involved with this election and maybe even about how you think COVID is playing into that. I think it was pretty, the piece that you pointed to was actually quite central, Scott, in the sense that I looked around at my family and we had at that point 11 passports amongst us, uh, but there was no one embassy where we could all seek shelter. We did not have a common citizenship amongst us. I'm from one country, my husband's from another, and my three children were born here in the US. And while in a pinch, I'm sure the Canadian embassy would take us all, I actually was quite concerned given the rising political climate, even though that I know that as a person of privilege with a PhD from an elite institution, I'm not in the same kind of risk as so many other people in the US in this moment. It felt like it was no longer an administration that was in support of immigrants and I was one. And that was, I did have the privilege to change that both from the perspective of being more comfortable myself, but also being able to change the situation. It was one thing to be able to look distantly at um, the American political process when Barack Obama was president. I no longer felt like I had the privilege to remain Mm -hmm. separate from that process. And it became very important to me to become a citizen. As I saw the increasing mismanagement and quite clear mismanagement and lack of any kind of central response to the COVID-19 pandemic. I only felt that my decision was ever more supported. There, It's interesting because the American presidency is a position that's quite different from a lot of other leaderships in democracies in the sense that the checks and balances for which I've been incredibly grateful these past four years preclude certain kinds of unifying decisions. But the one thing that I think a president would be really well poised to do is to provide a unified response for a national crisis. And we absolutely have not seen that. And because of that 
literally hundreds and thousands of people are dead. Cora, let me bring you in on this. And I had Colleen Haggerty on yesterday, and she's a reporter who has written about um, first-time voters and and youth in elections. And she was pointing out, I mean, these really staggering numbers of first-time voters coming out in states across the United States. So you're part of a movement in this election, but um, I can't ask you to speak for everybody in your generation, but can you speculate why has the turnout been so high this time? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a hard question. I think a lot of people my age are very, feeling very, like, disillusioned by the system as it is right now. And, um, you know, earlier this summer, there was a lot of reluctance to turn out, a lot of reluctance to vote. Um, and I think... Um, from what I've heard, I mean, I had two classes today, both where there was space to kind of discuss how folks are feeling today. And there's a lot of um, nervous energy around it. And it's, um, I think folks are seeing voting as just this, this one small thing that they can do if they have the privilege to vote, one small thing they can do kind of in inside of a bigger picture of like collective activism around and like collective action that is being spearheaded by a lot of like youth leaders. That came right up now. yesterday too. Uh, Darian Williams was talking about that. I, I wonder, can you say a little bit more about that? Because if the vote then is important, but it's part of a spectrum of civic action that we've seen from young people around the world, frankly, and not just in COVID times, but I mean, thinking about the climate strike from last year, anti-gun uh, movement that's been going on, and then with what's been going on around Black Lives Matter this year and the pandemic, I mean, we have these multiple different things converging. It's It goes beyond a single person voting. I mean, it seems like we're into something much bigger here. Does it feel that way to you? And and how will that manifest itself, do you think? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it felt like there was so much work to do yesterday and I'm sure I'll feel the same way tomorrow. Um, like, and I think for as, as much like anger and rage as there is around the election and like issues right now, I think um, a lot of folks my age are also trying to balance that with like the love and care we feel for our communities and for each other. And um, I think that's kind of driving the um, stamina that we're seeing in a lot of these movements is that like being grounded in those values of like justice and equity and love. And, um, you know, I think that's what's, that's what it's going to take to propel us past November 3rd. That's powerfully said. Now you're, if I'm checking my notes here correctly from President Trump, you're a member of a group that's an enemy of the American people. Um, so you voted today and you're also a member of the press. There's additional responsibility there too, right? Yeah. Um, so I think the press is going to play a big role in the next couple weeks. Um, you know, with the constant efforts to um, invalidate the 
election system. Um, honestly, in all of our strategizing meetings, we, we don't really know what to expect tonight. We don't know what to expect over yeah. the next two weeks at, at the local level or the national one. Um, so I think it's the media has to be very flexible in terms of what its coverage looks like, um, but constantly like reflecting on the values that we hold as a, like a media organization and um, like the stories we want to tell, not uh, which aren't necessarily the ones that will get told, but um, yeah, we're, it's, it's an effort. Almost up on time for this segment today, but if my guests will will uh, humor me, I just want one more quick quick round. And Yahira, I want to start with you because you're a future disaster scientist and you're studying in the one of the best places to study that. Um, and you're also on your path to voting in the next U.S. election. What needs to change from your perspective, not just in America but in disaster? policy? What would you like to see changing in the way we think about disasters in the United States between now and the next election day? Oh, that's a loaded question. I, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think just seeing something, anything at this point um, would help. You know, we had a presidency that continuously denied climate change. Uh, and we're seeing all this changes in you know we're seeing more storms we're seeing more hurricanes we're seeing more flooding and communities keep on suffering the effects and communities keep on suffering not only the effects of the storm but the effects of social injustice mm -hmm. and social inequity and we i feel like we haven't done enough to reconcile the both of of them um we intend to do things from a community approach, but we forget to involve the community. Or we forget, it seems at least, that that we forget to see what the community wants and needs. And to me, that's I, I feel like that's that, that's really close to my heart. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel really passionate about it because if we know that that disaster uncovers in the inequality and the, the vulnerability. But that vulnerability exists before the disaster even strikes. And, and if we don't add, try to address one, the, the first one, then how can we truly address the latter? Um, and that's, I feel like we, we definitely need more of that. That's powerfully said. Sharona, I want to turn that over to you. I mean, you, first time US presidential voter today. So this next time you get to vote, you get to sort of go in there and demand accountability. Um, what do you think is possible to change in these next few years? I'm so impressed with what Yahira put on the table there. What's your take? I think I turn to what Yahira and Cora said, and I think it really has so much to do with what the youth want and need. 
If anything, I feel an incredible responsibility toward the next generation. I think there are some things that are markedly better and most things are not. So if anything, I will follow the lead of what the next generation tells us they want and need from reducing college debt, Obviously, climate change has to be the number one priority, changing gun control laws and so on and so forth. But what can we imagine as a possible future that will be as good and ideally better than the one that we currently inhabit? That is the future that I'm working for. And it's not for me. It's for the next generation and for my children. Cora, I'm going to give you the last word on this. Not that you have to solve every problem of democracy in the next four years, but what would be a tangible thing that you think by the next time you go into the polling place could have changed? Um, yeah, I think there, I think that change is change that we're already seeing in action. I don't think, um, you know, that change is going to come, you know, 60 days before the next presidential election. I think it's already like in the works right now and it has been in the works for like decades. Um, so I think we're building on like, a major legacy of, um, you know, work for a better future. And, um, you know, by the next time we have a presidential election, I think Gen Z's and millennials will make up more than half of the voting population, which, um, I mean, that will be an overwhelming shift in the tides, I think. And hopefully um, that doesn't come too late. Uh, as a proud Gen X member, uh, I'm happy to follow along and you don't even have to name us. Nobody ever names us. It's fine. We'll just be in the background, but, um, powerful, powerful words. And thank you for this, um, this discussion, uh, Cora Fortune, Sharona Pearl and Yahaira Ayala talking to us about um, future first-time voting and first-time voting today. And uh, I'm sure you'll all be watching the returns and we'll see you uh, on Twitter and social media. Thanks so much for coming on COVID Calls today. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Okay, now I'm gonna turn to the second part of COVID calls today, and I'm gonna read the statistics, which I usually would read at the top, as of today, November 3rd, 2020, there are 1,210,548 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the United States, there are 9,358,469 cases of COVID-19. That's up from 9,247,036 cases reported yesterday. And there are now a total of 232,374 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 231,227 reported yesterday. Setting records right now, day by day, uh, for new cases and for deaths. In disasters, there are almost never singular causes or singular villains. That's one of the reasons we have such a hard time thinking clearly about disaster, I think. The causes are interlaced. 
They stretch out over geography. They don't pay attention to national boundaries usually, and um, they stretch out over time. Disasters rarely line up neatly with political responsibility. Uh, September 11, for example, boosted President George W. Bush, made him more popular. Um, and then Hurricane Katrina happened after he had been reelected. Of course, one wonders if he would have been reelected had that hurricane come in an election year, we'll never know that, but the time for accountability in election years doesn't usually line up well with disaster events as they occur. Disasters like climate change belong to many, many elected officials. And of course, not just to the public, but also to people in the private sector as well. But when we're talking about governance, something as complicated as climate change there are a lot of elected officials to hold accountable for that. But this year, as with so many things, there's something a little different going on. And this most excruciating disaster, this COVID-19 pandemic, at a global scale, it's playing out, and in the United States, it's playing out against the backdrop of an election. So something that doesn't usually happen, which is a major disaster lining up with a moment of political accountability. And it's a disaster unlike anything we've seen in the United States in a long, long time. Most elected officials in the United States, I would say on balance, I haven't done a systematic accounting of this yet, but I and others certainly will in the months and years to come, but most have actively taken steps um, that have tried to save lives, to reduce suffering, to also be attentive to the needs of people who are vulnerable in our society, to take into account the violence that we saw with the murder of George Floyd, the support for our African Americans and our communities, the support for older Americans, for Native Americans, people who are suffering disproportionately, most of our elected officials across the United States on balance have been attentive to this, I would say. Some have actively taken steps that have cost lives, that have caused suffering, and that have caused trauma that won't be finished in any of our lifetimes, not to mention by the time of the next election. And I don't need to make a speech today about Donald Trump. There have been plenty of speeches made about Donald Trump, but it is clear to me that Donald Trump treated the pandemic unseriously from the beginning. It'll take some time for us to fully understand the historical conditions that made that possible for him not to treat the pandemic as a matter of the most grave seriousness in January and February, but it's pretty clear that he didn't. The fact that then his inattention turned to um, an actual all-out assault on science. I think that's something that even the most jaded analysts, and I count myself among them, did not see coming. And when the pandemic slipped away from him, from the federal government, he had lied continually throughout the spring and the summer and throughout this election season to try and change the subject, to try to confuse people, to cast doubt on his own scientific advisors, 
And ultimately, most recently, with the goal of blaming others for his failures, and he's blamed people that you might expect, former President Barack Obama, his opponent, Joe Biden. But in the closing few days of this election, President Donald Trump has actually blamed healthcare workers, doctors, hospitals, trying to shift that blame somehow onto them. And I can't say that I've understand the logic of it at all, but I do understand the rhetoric of it. It's a rhetoric of hate. And it's one that people in the United States get a chance to weigh in on today, finally. And with this in mind, I'm going to spend the rest of the time today on COVID calls, reading life stories of healthcare workers. And I'm going to read them with a focus um, of people who've died trying to save lives, who did so in what we call the battleground states. It's a curious uh, anomaly of American democracy that we have an electoral college, and that means that in any given election, there are certain states that are actually really um, up for the taking, where the battle is being fought. And everybody who's following this election knows where those states are, some in the Sun Belt, some in the upper Midwest, and some in the West. And um, Pennsylvania as well, states in the, old, uh, in the old Rust Belt. So I'm going to focus my attention on those. I'm going to be pulling from the um, quite extraordinary series that's been put together by Kaiser Health News and The Guardian um, as I read these. So that's what I'm going to spend the rest of the time today, and I'm going to encourage everybody, um, you probably already voted, um, good luck to everyone, and following the election returns tonight, and join me also on COVID calls tomorrow, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the election and the outcome of the election, and what it all means for COVID-19 going forward. So let me turn my attention now Yolanda Kaur. Yolanda Kaur died on August 9th in Augusta, Georgia. She worked at the Augusta University Medical Center. She was a nurse manager. Headline, a love story interrupted. She stood four foot 11, but Yolanda Kaur didn't do small. She had a massive smile and generous spirit, her husband Matthew said. He's now realizing since her death, all the people she touched including the time Core covered the cost of an engagement ring when a co-worker didn't have enough money. Matthew, a radiology technician, said he met his future wife years ago when they were medical interns. They would have celebrated their 10th wedding anniversary on the 25th of September this year. The couple delighted in homey pleasures, cooking, supporting local sports teams, and spending time with their sons, 8 and 10 years old. Cora had worked at the Augusta University facility for a dozen years and was promoted in May to nurse manager. Her husband said one of her favorite sayings was, be exceptional. Matthew Cora said his wife wasn't overly concerned about the coronavirus because the general medical and surgical units she oversaw had no known COVID-19 patients. She and her co-workers wore surgical masks rather than N95s. Even when Cora fell ill in July and tested positive, they figured she would beat it. His goodbye was through a plexiglass window at the hospital after she died. I told her one last time that I loved her internationally, worldwide, worldwide, and all over, he said forever. 
was written by Kathleen Horan. Gerardo Pacheco died August 3rd, Houston, Texas. He worked in the Houston Fire Department, Station 101. He was a firefighter and a paramedic. Headline, paramedic showed his sons how to be caring young men. To Justin Pacheco's friends, his firefighter father was famous. Why? Jerry Pacheco conquered Plucker's Wing Bar's Wall of Flame Challenge, downing a kilogram of fire in the whole wings, not once, but twice. Dad tried to resist round two, said Justin, but when I asked, he wouldn't say no. Jerry Pacheco's devotion to Justin and his younger brother, Jesse, wasn't limited to pepper-infused notoriety. Jerry won a custody battle for his sons years ago and did whatever it took to care for them, Justin said. He worked 24-hour shifts at the fire department and would start whipping up a hot breakfast the moment he got home, with LL Cool J blasting on the stereo in the background to wake them up. Jerry showed us how to be caring young men, Justin said. His father mowed neighbors' lawns, provided quick medical checks for neighbors worried about possible ailments, and helped elderly friends move homes. His father was considered the fire department's premier paramedic, his son said. When Justin, now 25, followed his father into the fire department, his father showed him the ropes there too. As COVID-19 hit Houston, Jerry's work was essential. Thousands of cases were emerging daily, and Jerry responded to calls in full protective gear, his son said. On the 22nd of July, Jerry Pacheco started coughing. Days later, hardly able to breathe, he drove himself to the hospital because he refused to expose his sons, Justin said. A week later, the elder Pacheco was moved into intensive care. His two sons FaceTimed him daily, although the cacophony of life-saving machines made conversation difficult. Justin said, Jerry Pacheco's heart stopped on the 3rd of August as Justin was driving to his shift at the firehouse. That was written by Eli Kahan. Sonia Brown died July 29th, Miami, Florida. She worked at the Kendall Regional Medical Center. She was a nurse. Headline, nurse in Miami had strong sense of duty. Sonia Brown had a plan, work until January, then retire after nearly 40 years of nursing and move in with family in North Carolina. But she died of complications from COVID-19 on the 29th of July. Kendall Regional Medical Center in Miami, where Brown worked for 19 years, in an email called her an experienced clinician and frontline member of their team. Brown, who emigrated from Cuba at age five, worked in telemetry. According to her son, David, when she fell ill, she told her daughter there were 27 COVID patients on her floor. Kendall wrote in its email that the hospital provided protective equipment, including N95 masks. David Brown said his mother never complained about a lack of protective gear, but before the pandemic, wearing a mask was not part of her work culture. He added, she'd tell me that for the most part, it was considered rude to wear a mask in front of patients. Brown had diabetes and her four children had pressed her to retire. But she had a strong sense of duty, her son said. Brown died seven weeks after her husband Ron succumbed to Parkinson's disease. She survived only a few days in the hospital, her son said, and she did not want to be placed on a ventilator. Her belief was, if it's my time to go, so be it. It was written by Katya Ritterbush.
Shaquana Miller-Garrett died July 2nd. Fort Lauderdale, Florida. She worked at Holy Cross Hospital as a registrar. Headline, she had planned to take a leave from work. Shaquana Miller-Garrett never said goodbye. Her family said they were not allowed to enter her hospital room until she lost consciousness for the last time. And when she was buried, her husband and two small daughters grieved from inside a blue Toyota Camry watching her funeral by video. They too had become infected with COVID-19 and were isolating. Miller Garrett's brother, Curtis Miller Jr. said none of this should have happened. Miller Garrett was a hospital registrar and she checked in patients as they entered the hospital. Her brother said she was given a little paper mask to wear at work. Miller Garrett had diabetes, which put her at increased risk from COVID-19 and she worried about the killer virus, he said. She was going to take a leave of absence, her brother said, but she was waiting because of dealing with insurance. Miller Garrett was undergoing dialysis and was checking whether treatment was still covered if she left her job temporarily. But Miller Garrett began feeling weak and then lost her appetite around 26, the 26th of June. Soon she had trouble breathing and was admitted to the hospital where she worked, her brother said. She died, she died on July 2nd. She got it from work, he said, and then she took it home to the kids and her husband and they had to deal with it after her death. Her brother believes his sister's death may have been avoided if the hospital provided better PPE, including N95 masks for all workers. Holy Cross Hospital declined to respond. This was written by Madison Conte. Michael Willis died June 30th in Bisbee, Arizona. He worked at the Copper Queen Community Hospital. He was a respiratory therapist. Headline, respiratory therapist kept everything calm in the ER. 40 years ago, layoffs derailed Michael Willis's plans to be a railroad welder. He turned that into an opportunity, opting for on-the-job training as a respiratory therapist. Willis worked in hospitals, sleep labs, and home care in Ohio, Illinois, North Carolina, and Arizona. He learned how to work and how to repair and troubleshoot every piece of machinery, said Kim Willis, his wife of 20 years. In 2014, the couple moved from Illinois to Sierra Vista, Arizona, and soon faced health challenges. In 2015, he had a heart attack and then quadruple bypass surgery. In 2016, she was diagnosed with a pituitary tumor. Facing hefty medical bills, Willis returned to work in 2017. At Copper Queen Community Hospital, Willis was valued for his gentle humor and steady demeanor, said Kathy Lodge, a respiratory manager. He kept everything calm. Willis was meticulous with his protective gear. During his last 72-hour shift that ended on June 11th, Willis told his wife he worked on a very sick COVID-19 patient for hours. He got off his shift on Thursday. On Monday, he had a bad headache, she said. Within days, he was flown to a hospital in Scottsdale. He was given plasma, fluids, steroids, Remdesivir antibiotics, Kim said. He was in the ER on June 20th and gone on June 30th. This was written by Michaela Gibson Morris. Victoria Greco died June 25th in Atlanta, Georgia. She worked at the Kaiser Permanente Crescent Medical Center as a pediatric licensed practical nurse. Headline, she relished in her role as a grandmother. In 2009, Victoria Greco and her husband, Richard Hooker, moved from Florida to Georgia to be hands-on grandparents. They loved taking their grandchildren on outdoor weekends. 
ventures, ventures. At 50, Greco went back to school to fulfill a lifelong dream of becoming a nurse. This spring, she pivoted from pediatrics to help screen for COVID-19. Greco was frustrated that she had to wear the same mask for up to five days, Hooker said. She put it on her desk and let her out when she came home. She told her husband that each shift, at least three or four patients arrived refusing to wear masks. Sometimes they tried to pass right by her to enter the clinic. Hooker suspects that was when she was exposed. That is what killed my wife, he said. In a statement, Kaiser Permanente said it was incredibly saddened by Greco's death. It noted that employees in patient care areas received surgical masks, but we did not require our staff to wear the same mask for any set number of days. According to her employer, Greco was diagnosed with COVID-19 on June 3rd and died three weeks later. Though she was healthy without any pre-existing conditions, the virus attacked her lungs and kidneys, her husband said. This was written by Sadia Rafikuddin. Lisa Burhanan died June 11th in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. She worked at Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. She was a volunteer hospital chaplain and social worker. Headline social worker was a voice for the city. In 2015, Lisa Burhanan rode to Nashville with her babies, a gospel dance troupe for a TV performance. Burhanan coached the young women through their Marvin Gaye number that weekend and at many local shows afterward. Beyond the shows, she brought the ladies together, said Portia Boland-Gator, her aunt. She taught them by example how to live. Described by her mother, Paula Jackson, as an energizer bunny, Burhanan was committed to her community. She provided trauma rehabilitation to victims of a crime and as a volunteer chaplain at Pinnacle Medical Center, Burhanan counseled grieving families. She had a servant's heart, said Jackson, a true voice for the city. When Pennsylvania entered lockdown in late March, Burhanan did what she could, including delivering masks to clients. The family said she was finding her own protective equipment. CSSJ did not respond to requests for comment. On May 27, as a horrible cough worsened, Burhanan asked Jackson to write down her final wishes. She wanted C.C. Winan's alabaster box to be sung at her funeral. The next day, she was hospitalized. Harrisburg's mayor spoke at Burhanan's funeral. Her gospel troupe danced, and the mourners sang her song. This was written by Eli Kahan. Valerina Singer died June 3rd in Cayenta, Arizona. She worked at the Cayenta Health Center. She was a registered nurse. Headline, doting aunt spoke Navajo with elders. Valerina Val Singer was a jokester with a bubbly personality, a doting aunt. She referred to her nieces as her babies. She loved to hike and had a soft spot for animals. Where she grew up, there were a lot of horses, cows, sheep, and goats, said her cousin, Marcy Singer Rivera. A member of the Navajo Nation, Singer grew up on the reservation in Arizona, one of five children in a tight-knit family. She left to study nursing, but returned once she earned her degree. She had a warm presence and spoke Navajo with community elders. 
She was just an all around wonderful person, Rivera said. Singer was working at the center when COVID-19 struck the Navajo nation. Her cousin said she was sick for about a month before she died of complications related to the virus. Her employer, the Indian Health Service, would not comment on Singer's case, but wrote in a statement for Guardian Kaiser Health News that the agency is working to mitigate potential risks to patients and staff system-wide. This was written by Danielle Renwick. Dulce Garcia died May 26th in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She worked at the University of North Carolina hospitals as a clinical interpreter. Headline, there were so many things she had unfinished. Dulce Garcia loved to dance. On weekends, she and her friends frequented the Luna nightclub in Durham, where they would romp to bachata, merengue, and reggaeton. It was our ritual, said Brittany Mathis. She encouraged those unable to safely drive home to sleep over. She was the group mom, Mathis said. She'd tell us we don't want to lose anyone. Garcia was also the rock and foundation for her family, Mathis said. As a teen, Garcia cared for siblings while her parents worked. She also volunteered at the Neighborhood Boys and Girls Club. When Garcia learned about the healthcare gaps faced by Spanish speakers, she joined the hospital as an interpreter. There, she was surprised at how much she could help, Mathis said, and how many needed her. The week after she picked up a Sunday shift, she developed a fever. Mathis was not sure whether she received personal protective equipment. Our PPE policies have followed CDC guidance, the hospital said. The symptoms persisted, Mathis said. It just doesn't feel real. There were so many things she had unfinished. This was written by Eli Kahan. Alnisha Adams died May 16th in Philadelphia, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She was an environmental services professional. Headline, hospital cleaner loved to dance and travel. When Falnisha Adams walked into a hospital room during her shift on April 3rd, she had no idea a COVID positive patient had been treated there. She cleaned the room as she typically would, making sure it was spotless. She likely had a smile on her face, her sister Shawnee Adams said, but she wore no PPE. Adams had worked in the sedation unit at Children's Hospital, her employer of 24 years. She repeatedly asked supervisors for masks, which eventually they supplied, her sister said, but it was too late. Adams continued to work until April 10th when she went to the emergency room with a fever. A COVID test came back positive about a week later. She was hospitalized on April 20th with low oxygen levels. Adams loved to dance. She was on the drill team in high school and spent Friday nights line dancing. She also loved casinos, travel, prayer, and spending time with her family. Adams stayed close with her aunt, Sharon Robinson Cotino, and two sisters until the end. I love her and I miss her. We all miss her, Robinson Cotino said, but I know she's in a better place and she's at peace. This was written by Anna Siriani. Deborah Eubanks Stevers died May 12th in Gainesville, Georgia. She worked at the Northeast Georgia Medical Center. She was a licensed practical nurse. Headline, if I didn't go in, then who's going to do it? 
Deborah Debbie Eubanks Stevers and her husband, Stephen Stevers, started jobs at AT&T on the same day in 1986. They married two years later. She was the best partner I could have ever asked for, he said. When Debbie was laid off about 15 years ago, she turned to nursing and worked in the Progressive Coronary Care Unit. Stephen said she absolutely loved her job, even when it wore her out. Northeast Georgia Health System confirmed that Debbie cared for COVID-19 patients. Elizabeth Larkins, director of critical care nursing, said some patients received care before anyone knew they had COVID-19 due to testing limitations and processing delays. Stevens said that Debbie had access to PPE from the beginning, but staffers were asked to reuse masks and face shields following Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines. One night, Stephen asked why she didn't just stay home. Is it worth it? Her reply, if I don't go in, then who's going to do it? She became ill in April and was put on a ventilator soon after. Weeks later, after she had suffered brain damage from COVID-19, Stephen made the decision to stop treatment. He donned full PPE and went to her bedside to say goodbye. It was their 32nd wedding anniversary. This was written by Victoria Knight. Tina Reeves died April 27th in Orient, Ohio. She worked at the Pickaway Correctional Institution as a licensed practical nurse. Headline, she always listened and never judged. When Tina Reeves visited her grandchildren, music would blast from the car. Wales on chill rang out, trying to hear, hear all your problems so I can lighten the load. She loved her music, said daughter Tiana Mohabir, even though she had no rhythm for squat. Reeves had an ear for other people's lives, though. Younger co-workers called her mother advice. Mohabir said, in interactions with prisoners and officers alike, she always listened, Mohabir said, and never judged. She called her three daughters daily, checking in on all of us, Mohabir added. When Reeves started coughing in early April, Pickaway had already reported more than 1,500 cases of COVID-19. PPE was and continues to be available to staff. A prison spokesperson said the family said their mother did not have access to adequate PPE. Reeves was hospitalized with COVID-19. On April 13th, she called her daughter to ask her to take care of paying her utility insurance and cable bills. I didn't think twice, Mohabir said, because I didn't want them to shut off when she got home. Within 24 hours, Reeves was intubated. This was written by Eli Kahan. LaShawn Perez died April 22nd in Howell, Michigan. LaShawn worked at Medilodge of Howell as a certified nursing assistant, a hard worker with big personality. LaShawn Perez was a young spirit. She knew all the latest music, wore clothes that got noticed and loved to color her hair, red streaks, purple, anything went, her personality was big. My auntie, she didn't curse, she didn't smoke, she didn't drink, recalled Kendra Yell Hill, but she was hilarious. Perez was also a devout Christian. Hill considered Perez a second mom, and whenever she would perform at church, Perez sat in front, clapping and cheering. She worked hard and saved her pennies. Her employer, Metalodge, did not return a message seeking comment. When Perez got sick in March, the family initially was told it was a blood sugar problem, but later it became clear she had COVID-19. She was hospitalized and fell into a coma. 
They prayed, Hill thought. I'm not going to worry because it's in God's hands. One day she awoke for reasons that aren't clear. She died alone in her hospital room a short time later. That, along with the changing diagnosis and the fact that she got so much sicker in the hospital has left her family with painful, unanswered questions. At her funeral, Perez was dressed in her finest clothes and jewelry. The family carefully placed a tiara on her head. Human beings live here on earth, but one day they have to go home to heaven, Hill said. They made sure she looked nice when she got there. This was written by Maureen O'Hagan. I'm going to read one more life story today. Been reading life stories of COVID-19 victims, most of them medical professionals and caregivers from the battleground states, the states that everybody's going to be watching and talking about tonight that'll decide this election. This last one comes from Wisconsin. Headline, Family Mourns Death of Eau Claire World War II Veteran from COVID-19. This was written by Eric Lindquist of the Eau Claire Leader Telegram and appeared yesterday, November 2nd. Lawrence Radisiewicz survived being part of the Normandy invasion in the Battle of the Bulge, two of the bloodiest and most famous conflicts of World War II, but he finally met his match in COVID-19. Radisiewicz, 97, died October 17th from complications of COVID-19 at Care Partners Assisted Living in Eau Claire, according to family members. He's had heart problems for a long time, but in the end, what really did him in was COVID-19. Dave Radisiewicz said of Madison, Dave Radisiewicz of Madison said of his father, a humble member of what's often called the greatest generation who rarely talked about his World War II service. Lawrence, a U.S. Army radio operator, earned a bronze star for his heroics at the Battle of the Bulge, in which he saved many American lives by continuing to radio information about newly discovered German outposts despite being targeted by enemy fire, said his daughter Diane Radisiewicz-Rom of Baxter, Minnesota. After the war, Lawrence, an Altoona native, returned to the Chippewa Valley where he married his sweetheart, Catherine Turba, and worked as a machinist for decades at the Uniroyal Tire Plant in Eau Claire. He was not one to brag about himself or even to appreciate the skills that he had, but he was someone who could fix anything or build anything, Diane said. Ultimately, however, doctors couldn't fix Lawrence once he contact, contracted the coronavirus, despite taking extraordinary measures, including trying remdesivir, a drug recently approved by the Food and Drug Administration for COVID-19. It was just too much for him to fight, Diane said. The family remains upset with the way the COVID-19 pandemic has been handled. It's frustrating, the lack of leadership on this issue, Dave said. A lot more could have been done to save a lot more people. Listening to the political back and forth about COVID-19 at the same time his family was coping with his father's case was painful, Dave said. That mask wearing has become some sort of political issue instead of a public health issue makes me want to scream, he said. It should be a matter of common sense. Wear a mask, you're not being a coward by trying to prevent disease spread. You're more of a hero. Diane expressed similar sentiments, stating that her father's death carries an extra layer of grief because it feels almost like he was the victim of a crime. So many lives were needlessly shortened. It didn't have to be this way, added Diane, who called on Americans to work together and follow the science to get through the pandemic. The American Healthcare Association and National Center for Assisted Living, representing more than 14,000 nursing homes and assisted living communities across the country, providing care to 5 million people a year, released a report 
this week showing COVID-19 cases are increasing in US long-term care facilities because of community spread among the general population. As we feared, the sheer volume of rising cases in communities across the United States, combined with the asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic spread of this virus has unfortunately led to an increase in new COVID cases in nursing homes. AHCA NCAL President Mark Parkinson said in a news release, it's incredibly frustrating as we had made tremendous progress to reduce COVID rates in nursing homes after the spike this summer in Sunbelt states. If everybody would wear a mask and social distance to reduce the level of COVID in the community, we know we would dramatically reduce these rates in long-term care facilities. During the week of October 18th, 43% of new cases in nursing homes were from Midwest states with major spikes in community spread. Overall, residents of long-term care facilities account for 8% of the nation's cases, but 40% of COVID-19 deaths, a report indicates. While mortality rates have decreased compared with the spring, Due to a better understanding of the virus, better treatments, and government resources to help reduce spread, industry leaders remain deeply concerned that the rising number of new COVID-19 cases in facilities will lead to an increase in deaths, the group said in the release. In Wisconsin, the State Department of Health Services has launched about 1,200 public health investigations this year involving COVID-19 cases reported at long-term care facilities. As of last week, DHS reported 598 of those investigations remain active, including 22 at facilities in Eau Claire, Dunn, and Chippewa counties. Jason Lindeman, owner of Care Partners, and it's more than 40 facilities across the state, said cases are climbing at its properties in northern Wisconsin as the virus spikes in those more rural areas. As a company, we're addressing it on an individual site basis, he said. Care Partners continues to follow virus protocols recommended by public health agencies, including requiring masks, limiting visitation, banning communal dining, isolating people with exposures, and taking expanded sanitization measures, Lindemann said. Meanwhile, Radisiewicz family members have had to comfort each other and grieve in isolation from their loved one. Visitation restrictions meant they couldn't visit Lawrence at the assisted living facility after he reported difficulty breathing and not being able to feel his legs before testing positive for COVID-19. They still couldn't see him when he was hospitalized or even after he was put on hospice at care partners before his death. They had to be in quarantine because of the at-risk population that lives there and we couldn't see him for months, Diane said. I'm grateful that my husband and I did a thorough, did a through the window visit a couple weeks before he was diagnosed. The family is thankful that Catherine continues to do okay since testing positive for the virus shortly before her husband's death. Even Lawrence's funeral will be live streamed because the family doesn't want to put anyone else at risk of contracting the virus, especially as cases surge in the Chippewa Valley and across the state. With no one around, they will bury his ashes, Dave said. We made the conscious decision because of COVID that we don't want anyone getting together. Maybe in the future we can do something graveside for the family. Beyond the political aspects of the health crisis that has resulted in more than 230,000 deaths in the United States and over 2,000 in Wisconsin, Diane said her father's death brings sadness. We knew he didn't have forever left, and we understood any time we had with him was precious, but this virus that triggered his death took away my last chance to spend any time with him and made my life a much darker and emptier place, Diane said, and I know we're not alone. You can catch COVID calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow, we'll be talking about the aftermath of the election and uh, 
talking about possibilities for disaster reduction in the aftermath of COVID. I'll be talking with Andy Revkin tomorrow. Please join me for that. And stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.